0: Hello, everybody, and you are listening to episode 70 of the R Weekly Highlights podcast. It's been a little bit, um, to say the least, and we're going to get into that shortly. But um, my name is Eric, and as always, I am joined by my excellent co-host, Mike Thomas. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing well. Happy New Year to everyone out there. I hope
1: everybody's 2022 is off to a good start thus far, and we are excited to be back on the mic.
0: Yes. Yeah. Likewise. It was uh, great. And and I echo all that. Happy New Year. Hope you all had a great uh, a break in your celebrations of the holidays. And for me, I was able to unplug a little bit uh, and do some cool learning and spend some time with family. And so it was refreshing. But yeah, the the New Year's underway. Got a lot of new things happening. And um, certainly if you've been a regular listener, you'll probably notice that it has been a few weeks since we've been on air, and I do want to start off the top of the show with kind of an update on where things stand um, with our weekly itself and where that relates to us on the podcast. And then afterwards, um, Mike and I are going to have just a fun kind of informal chat about our journeys in 2021 with our you know, data science and analytical efforts and some of the cool things we've learned along the way. So. So with R Weekly itself, um, if you all had listened to like the very first episode, and if you had, congratulations, because that was a long time ago, Um, I gave some background on how like R Weekly from the very beginning in 2016 has been a community effort, completely volunteer based, nobody is paid to do this, not sponsored by one company. And that to me has always been one of the virtues of it is that it is from the community and for the community. And that's been one of the reasons I think has been so successful is that we've had this shared pool of curators who have been very generous with their time to assemble all the excellent links that we put in each issue with their personal take on it and making sure that we kind of spread that, spread that work around. Um, Now, on top of this kind of community effort with the curation, um, our founder of our weekly Wolfram Chin has created just an amazing set of backend tools that all of us on the curation side of it could literally use to automate and make easier a lot of this current process of how we assemble each of these uh, set of links for each issue. Well, It was about a month ago, a little more than a month ago, that um, one of our most critical pieces to this curation pipeline um, was compromised. So to be a little more specific, we have um, a a very important server that um, has been maintained to actually automate and host a lot of these services, and it has gone offline. Um, We're not quite sure why. Um, we have some theories, but uh, but the, the bottom line is that we've had some challenges to get that back up and running, which meant that the issues that were kind of depending on that current process have been put on hold as a result. Um, and as someone who has been so passionate about being part of our weekly, I certainly got concerned and I started to take a look at, well, is there a way I can even help out with getting some of this back end stuff up and running? Well, I was telling Mike in the pre-show that unfortunately, I just do not have the expertise and the tech stack that has been chosen to get something up and running quickly that would work exactly as it did before. With that said, our team on our internal Slack has had some pretty healthy discussion on perhaps we can turn this into a positive and make things a little easier to maintain our weekly going forward and even make the curation process easier um, to still keep the high quality but like I said kind of minimize a bit of the burden that's that's been on the curation process. So in terms of what's happening in the short term, um, there will be a special issue release hopefully within a week or so that, actually aggregates all of the highlights from this past year, 2021. And then there will be kind of a set of what you might call mega highlights that will be selected um, for that upcoming issue to kind of do give a recap of where things stand. And certainly I'll be eager to talk about those with Mike as we usually do on all the regular issues. Now after that point, um I'm honestly not sure how long it will take to get the revised process that the R Weekly team will use to um, release issues going forward. So there is a likelihood that after this uh, 2021 recap episode that will be coming up relatively soon, um, the podcast might be put on pause a little bit until new issues of R Weekly are released. So certainly not the ideal situation, but we're we're trying to take positives out of it and hopefully it's a good chance for the team to reset a little bit and make things easier and i again i always want to give my sincere thanks to everybody that's been listening from the beginning and, and frankly everybody that's been li- uh, reading our weekly from however long you've been reading it um, we value all of the feedback that we've been getting and certainly as a proud member of the team i want to make sure that it continues going but in the way that we can sustain this in the long term so that's kind of a current update on the status but again to reassure that once our weekly is back up and running i am fully committed to keeping the podcast going i know mike you're excited to keep on with this as well and we really enjoy talking about these every week every issue and it it will it will continue on it's just going to be slightly different so that's where things stand right now
1: yeah thank you for the update eric and i you know hope everybody sticks with us uh, through this episode as well as into 2022 once our weekly does get back online like eric said you know we don't have any highlights to talk about today but we thought we might take a little bit of a different spin on it. If you were looking for highlights, uh, sorry, we're not going to be able to help you today, but we would like to try to keep the podcast alive today and maybe just reflect back on some things that we've learned in the past year or two um, as data scientists, Eric working in industry, me working in consulting, um, kind of having those two different perspectives and thought that it might be useful for somebody out there listening uh, to, to hear about our perspectives and for us to... To share that with you, and maybe some of it will resonate.
0: Absolutely, and um, and as we do before each of these episodes, Mike and I get our notes together in our little uh, handy dandy Markdown based show note doc. And Mike, you got some awesome points that I'm really eager to discuss with you. So why don't you kick us off? Sure, and and I might do a little bit of
1: interviewing you, Eric. So might might have to flip the the mic around a little bit. But um, I wanted to kick off a little bit with what's changed professionally since, you know, in the last year, last two years since the pandemic started, however you want to think about it. I've seen a lot of studies online saying that people have overall been more productive and also working more uh, due to working from home. And I was wondering, Eric, if you found this to be the case, it's, it's a little hard for me to gauge because I actually left industry to start my own company on March 1st, 2020. So I don't have a great sense of, I've got a little bit of bias in my sample um, and I don't have a great sense of what that transition was like because I, I was doing, you know, sort of two transitions simultaneously, one out of industry and and the other one into the pandemic. But yeah, <laughs> I was wondering, it, you know, what uh, your experience was professionally, um, since the pandemic started versus pre-pandemic.
0: Yeah, that, that's interesting points. And this can get pretty unique depending on the type of work somebody does. But as a, as a data scientist slash developer slash, you know, whatever you want to call my role, it's kind of a hybrid of things. Um, I certainly actually did benefit from the fact that I didn't have to spend two hours round trip on a commute. I could... Kind of get my work environment here at, at the house set up the way I like. I didn't have to worry about some of the uh, logistical things that can occur when you work at a you know a, 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 a on site you know workplace. And with that said, that's been beneficial. I've been able to um, you know, balance things slightly more in terms of like making sure I'm available when the, say the kiddos get home from school and stuff like that. But I do also want to mention that I know for me and probably a few others, either in my company or elsewhere, there is the tendency to feel like you've got to do a little more in certain cases because it seems like you're always connected now. And that is both a blessing and sometimes a curse. Um, Luckily, it's easy for me to reach out via Teams chat to somebody who I need help with and for an urgent issue but then they will do the same for me and sometimes i feel like i have to still monitor stuff a little bit during the quote non-business hours just in case something goes haywire which actually did kind of happen in different ways um, before the break and even just recently so there definitely is a tendency to not unplug as much as compared to like when you were going on site somewhere and then coming home and just that act of the Going away from the site was kind of like a way to unplug a little bit. So I think for me it there have been benefits, but then there are things I've had to try to adapt to make sure I still strike that balance now that my kind of working place is in essence merged with my 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 home life, if you will.
1: Yeah. I remember my commutes to and from the office sort of being especially home from the office sort of being like a decompression time right and you actually had this ramp down period from you know when you're working for eight hours back to to getting home and now most of us don't have that right we're we're working at our desk and then once the day's over it's just a a walk downstairs downstairs or upstairs that kind of separates uh, our work day from our, our personal Day. I was wondering because I don't have this experience in, anymore because I, we don't have too many teammates uh, at Catchbrook yet. Um, but when you're talking about using Teams chat and things like that, are you more cognizant of when your light is green on Teams uh, versus maybe how it used to be? Is, is there any pressure to make sure that your, your light is always available now that people, uh, you know, as opposed to being offline and people really being able to notice that that you're offline um, as opposed to when you're you're in the office and people maybe not focusing on that as much and maybe that's more of kind of pressure from from management to, to make sure that all their employees are are online because they can't can't see them right physically in the office space or has that not really been your experience at all
0: so there's been a lot of variation just even in my org on how that's treated luckily for my personal uh, team I work with, it's not as big of a deal because in the end we always say, you know, we understand that especially during these unique times that more flexibility is important where maybe something happens that we have to step away for a bit. But it's all about having that balance and making sure that if we are having issues where we're we're um, feeling like we have to step away for a bit, that uh, we just communicate that with our teams and making sure that if any backups are needed to help pitch in and some certain situations where we're ready for that. Um, but I haven't felt as much pressure on that piece other than just making sure that during the core hours, I, I am online in a sense, and I'm making sure that I'm able to receive any urgent things or receive, um, you know, calls when, when they come in. But I know that in other orgs, I have heard about some, management being a little more um you might say uh uh, careful watching that um but in the end we just are able to let our work speak for it so to speak
1: good good no that's that's good to hear that you have that good um culture at your organization or at least within the team that
0: you're in yep yep It, it could have been a lot worse as this transition goes and there are some people that it has been rougher for them to transition to it luckily for my type of work i feel like i can be just as productive here with my setup but then i knew some colleagues that actually missed being able to have those personal interactions those hallway conversations or quickly grabbing lunch with somebody so i I do sympathize with them it has been different but um, there's certainly hybrid approaches to how all this works and we've all been learning one way or another how the absolutely
1: we're fortunate enough that in tech we can still continue Delivering a lot of value for our company remotely, um, you know, one of the hardest things for me in the past couple of years has been networking. Yeah, um, like it was for a lot of people, I'm sure. And yeah. I know that people working in the quote unquote sales profession can sometimes get a bad rap, but I feel so much for them because you know their their job has absolutely had to have making a lot of adjustments. Um, but in light of not being able to do as much personal uh in-person networking i have found that places like twitter and slack have helped me network in a real way that actually feels personal to me as opposed to cold emailing or or things like that and uh, if you know you're out there listening trying to break into data science or, or already working in data science and you're feeling maybe like you know you would like to do some more networking, I would definitely recommend jumping on Twitter. There are some great Slack channels. If you're on the R side, the R for data science Slack channel, R for DS Absolutely. has been phenomenal for me to feel like I'm connected to a great R community. It's given me leads on work from a professional standpoint because there are uh, you know, jobs and, and hiring and connect freelance uh, channels on that Slack channel. So I would definitely recommend that if you're you're looking for some additional networking, like I was craving to check out Slack and and maybe even check out the the Twitter R stats and, and Python hashtags as well.
0: Well said. And uh, that was something even well before the pandemic, I underestimated as I was kind of getting started professionally, which is now about gosh, 12 years ago. My gosh, I'm I'm old now. Um, but when I when I first started getting to know the R community. Um, I had discounted this as like, of course, back then Slack wasn't really as prevalent as it is now, but i didn't I didn't really fully grasp just how powerful that can be when used like efficiently. So once I got on Twitter, started sharing some of the things I was doing and seeing what other people were sharing and how welcoming the art community has been on for the most part on social media um, that's that's been huge for me as well. And on top of this, the R4DS Slack, which again, I second how valuable that is. There are also great Slack groups for the R Open Side project, which also get a lot of, you know, highly high praise, well-deserved. And somewhat more recently, if you're into the Discord platform, there's now an R group on Discord as well. So you've got, you've actually got an abundance of choices. And, and even for me, like going back to how the pandemic has changed things a little bit, honestly that is what spurred me on this kind of new venture that i've been doing in the community which is basically not just sharing content after the fact so to speak but actually live streaming it um, i would never have done this if the pandemic hadn't happened but it was a unique way for me and others in even other parts of open source communities to kind of learn by doing but also bringing in real-time feedback from the audience and learn from each other and i still to this day when i do any of these twitch streams i've been doing lately i get real-time help from the audience as i'm struggling with issues and that to be honest it doesn't happen as much at work because i'm learning these things that are kind of new but then when i am able to do these open source projects i'm learning from brilliant people who do all sorts of different data science or software development tech stacks. And they help me troubleshoot within a few minutes. And we just kind of try stuff out live and, and I'm not afraid of it anymore. Like I'm not afraid that I'm not going to be perfect. Like I am probably in the group of streamers I network with, I'm probably the least competent in terms of live coding, but I enjoy it because I'm learning something and it was out of my comfort zone, but It was one of the benefits of being connected to that and having what I would say are real friendships from that core group alone. So that's been a lot of fun for me. That's awesome. Would you say that the biggest lesson that you've
1: learned from streaming is to just go ahead and try to put yourself out there and don't be be afraid about what you don't know and just try to get started?
0: That's definitely it. It's one of those things where in the past I tried to be too perfect with things, even like in the old podcast adventures I did, I tried to be perfect with everything. And now, you know, after seeing what others have done and seeing like other communities just value what they're doing and being more, I I hate to say real, but being more authentic with the fact that I'm going to mess up, I'm going to make mistakes here, but you know what? Learning from that is almost just as valuable as seeing the final solution. So that's kind of how I've rationalized it. And it wasn't easy. Like, it wasn't easy in the beginning. I felt a little bit of imposter syndrome compared to other things I watched. But now I kind of carved a little bit of a niche. And and like I said, it's been enjoyable when you get that interaction. Even if it's online, it's still an interaction that can really help make it more engaging, more entertaining. And like I said, be able to learn from others has been, has been a real joy for me.
1: Oh, that's awesome. And I, the
0: imposter syndrome definitely resonates
1: for me. I had a couple themes in, in 2021, but imposter syndrome uh, is definitely kind of always one of them. And it's it's a double-edged sword. And one of the reasons I think that you know I've had it in 2021 a little bit is that Shiny has exploded for me professionally. And I think that's due to how agnostic it is. I've built some awesome apps that Barely have anything to do with statistics, um, or, or barely have anything to do with data. I recently built an app that, that's just uh, for folks trying to take a quiz in a, in a workshop that doesn't really have <laughs> have much data behind it. But it was it was really cool and it was a, a fun project building yeah. a web application. Um, and because of that, a lot of times I, I didn't feel like in the past year I leveraged my stats background as much as I would like to on a day to day basis. And I know that you have you come from a stats background as well, Eric. And I I also feel on the other side of that coin, like I know I I will never know everything there is to know about the latest and greatest with Shiny and JavaScript is driving so much of the new development. So even the stuff that I am working on um, full time, I I still feel a bit of imposter syndrome because I'll never know everything that I need to know. But that's like anything in tech, right? And there's so many different rabbit holes that you can go down to create cool applications or cool web products. And it's impossible to go down each one of those paths. Um, so, you know, I would ask you, you, Eric, you know, now that you manage a couple people as well, are there any ways that you go about communicating, dealing with imposter syndrome or dealing with, dealing with it yourself?
0: Oh uh, yeah, that hits home. Cause I, in many ways I still have this, whether it was like I said earlier, the streaming stuff or otherwise, um, I think the, the part I try to tell myself is that there is nobody that I would trust to ask, you know, advice for is going to look down on me for asking these kind of questions. Like it, there is, there was pressure, especially earlier in my career where I felt like, okay, I gotta learn this on my own so that I can show that I'd be self-sufficient, that I can hit the ground running. And sometimes that would be a detriment if I was missing a key point where I didn't know the right questions to ask or even just starting a dialogue. And I learned through experience that um, I'm fortunate that I have a group that is always welcoming to answer questions. Um, Certainly there's still aspects where I feel a little scared to ask certain things that are more statistical because I feel like I'm almost expected to know that, but, I have colleagues that know Bayesian analyses, like the back of their hand, and they come from a very, um, very talented and and one of the leaders in the universities of of Bayesian methodologies. And so whenever I ask kind of a basic Bayes question, I'm kind of like, almost like ducking my head a little bit, like, okay, don't be be nice, but they're always nice about it. But I always feel like that's something I should have known before, but you know, the past is the past, Um, but I try at least with, either team members I'm supervising or colleagues that I'm kind of unofficially mentoring to say, you know, take advantage of the resources you have here because you may save yourself a boatload of time and, and making sure that others can help you out. If you ask, you know, early in the process, uh, something that's, you know, preventing you from implementing a solution, writing that function to do a model fit, or understanding what's going on under the hood of these models. Sometimes that's a thing I need to get better at is diagnosing when models don't perform well, not just taking the textbook answers, but really using some of the skills, maybe in different ways. And so I think the communication is, is the key and not being afraid to ask. And like I said, I still struggle with this a little bit, but over time, uh, there were some areas where now if I run into something, I don't hesitate to reach out to my IT colleague about an AWS esoteric thing. And I don't feel bad about it because, A, first, I'm not even an IT expert, technically speaking, in the org, but B, it shows that I'm trying something. Just showing that I'm trying something can actually lead to benefits that you might not realize if you just kind of do in your own silo and keep quiet about it and not really communicate that towards the end. And maybe you missed out on something that could have made it even better, so... Certain aspects I've gotten better with, and some aspects I still struggle with. But it is real, and the key is just reassuring whoever you work with that this is okay to feel this way. It's just a matter of feeling confident enough to ask about any issues you're encountering early on before it gets, you know, too much to overcome. Sure, sure, and I,
1: I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I, I think some of that reflection in there has to do with ensuring that you have a good team culture as well where you feel empowered and comfortable to ask questions of others maybe in different departments and that you feel comfortable to to ask for help and to be in an environment where you can try things um, and not worry about too much blowback or anything like that that you feel empowered to to take something on and i recently listened to an incredible podcast on the analytics power hour to to shout out a competitor, I guess, but JD Long just had an awesome episode and it was an amazing discussion on psychological safety in the workplace. And he had this point about in his organization and more specifically his team that he focuses on the fact that when a mistake is made by an analyst, maybe just in an SQL query or something like that, that they got the sign wrong um, instead of weakening the team and the relationships mistakes, actually make the team stronger. And he references Taleb a little bit to, to talk about building anti-fragile systems and try to try to build an anti-fragile team instead of a, a team that's fragile such that when a mistake is made, you know, management fires that person or that, you know, the analysts on the ground feel pressure to not make mistakes. And he doesn't want that to be the case in the environment. So I, I would definitely recommend folks check out their, that episode if they're interested in that kind of topic as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's a key point that I had in certain snippets in 2020 and also early in my career is that sometimes things don't work as expected and sometimes they maybe impact the back end, maybe they impact an uh, analytical report that you say, oh yeah, I caught this, I need to fix it. It's not about blaming, it's not about feeling like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm in trouble now, I'm going to be on the chopping block. No, no, no. These are ways to learn and I think showing initiative and being proactive about finding solutions is what people value a lot. And it was many years ago, but I, I've shared this in other places, but I'll, I'll share it here. But I had a correlation analysis of some biomarker data that took down our entire HPC cluster, just completely wiped it <laughs> out um, in terms of the execution power. And certainly, the, the team, the the Linux IT team, sent me a kind note. Like, Hey Eric, uh, maybe we could ta- talk about this. And I was scared because this is early in my career. So again, this is kind of like that feeling I just said sometimes you feel like, oh boy, I just uh, destroyed a, a huge uh, back end. But no, we use it as a way for me to learn better ways of doing HPC computing. And it started what became one of my most important collaborations in that whole company of working with the research IT folks because we did some really cool stuff after that jointly, whether it was spinning up our studio servers or finding ways to leverage HPC more effectively now with AWS stuff, but they and I think alike and it, it actually jumpstarted a very important relationship that made me personally more successful and frankly made a lot of my work more fun that I could work with them and learn from them about the ins and outs of DevOps and, how that can translate to data science and stat uh, development. So even a failure may seem like a huge, you know, problem at first, but you learn from it and it may lead to even better things down the road. So I'm going to listen to that episode definitely this week when I get a chance and we'll have a link to that uh, in the show notes for sure. Awesome.
1: I appreciate that story and I'm glad that you were able to take it in stride. As a learning opportunity and what sounded like the start of some pretty cool work that that you were able to collaborate with that team on at your organization. So maybe we can wrap up uh, with kind of your overall, if you want to pick one or two things about uh, your themes for 2021 as you look back on the year.
0: Yeah, I've thought about this as we were as we were brainstorming earlier and I think the part that really came in the focus this past year was interoperability on both a technical perspective but also frankly a culture perspective where from the tech standpoint I've been developing more sophisticated say shiny apps, R packages but they're never just used in isolation. They need more than just are. And in fact, this was in one of my uh, Shiny Dev Series episodes. I can't remember if it was the interview with Colin or, or elsewhere, but I I coined the phrase, it's never just Shiny. And the reason I said that is because all these things I've been doing this past year interact as Shiny with things like AWS, HPC, Linux clusters, um, databases hosted in the cloud or on-premises. And you, you deal with these other issues that You're not taught really how to deal with until you get experience and how the best network are or whatever analytical pipeline you have with these different backends so that you're in sync with changes that they're making, they're in sync with changes you're making. And is it easy? No, not really. Um, But it does underscore the importance of having that communication, that ability to keep up to date with things and getting into kind of more of the culture or the team aspect of it, I found myself networking with not just my colleagues in the stat group, but also with either research IT, more of the security IT, cloud IT, all these different IT branches, as well as the, um, you might say the customers of the things we are developing. So you're getting feedback from them on how the UX should be on these different things, whether it was a package or an app. You're getting feedback from these backend services about, whoa, you got to use that, uh, you got to use that API more uh, carefully, or you've got to deal with these quirks that can occur when you call it too much, or things like that. And here's the database schema, so make sure that when you upload stuff to it, it, it follows that standard, because it gets horribly broken if you don't, kind of thing. So it was a lot of learning about how to network effectively over these different backends, these different teams. And it was not always easy. In fact, I had a couple of stumbling blocks. And I think somewhat related to that is the concept of being upfront or making it a priority ahead of time about whatever process or template you want to use to maybe structure your code or structure how you network these different things together for crying out loud, get that documented early on. Because retrospectively putting that in, you lose the ability to have that cognitive, like on the spot recollection of like, I spun up that server because X, Y, Z, or I did that API because of this, this, this. Then you're kind of on a detective work to try and figure out, okay, why did we do this? (laughs) What was the point of it? And in fact, I had to make a spreadsheet of all things like networking, all these model servers that we had. Like I forgot how many there were. And apparently I wasn't the only one. (laughs) Did you just say spreadsheet, Eric? I said spreadsheet, yes. I had to live in the Microsoft world a lot. Oh, yes, Um, that's another, but ironically, I'm trying to look at the APIs for Microsoft and make that more fun, but that's another tangent. But (laughs) it was underscored that if you don't do that prospectively, it just, causes more time more effort in the end to figure out who did what why they did it and if there are problems with it what are alternatives to like those back ends so we've we've had some growing pains on that in one particular project but we're trying to rein it in and be a little more upfront about it but it, it just underscored that if you don't document these things ahead of time then you're going to lose some efficiency and who's doing what why that thing is used and frankly, even from a code development perspective, I launched in Shiny app in Golem. I made a nice infrastructure out of it, but that wasn't enough. I still should have been more attentive to how it was supposed to be used because it was taken in directions that I did not foresee. And we're still trying to rein that in. Mike's heard about this offline in some of my specific rants about this, but it's been it's been a learning journey about you can set it up technically but you've got to give that, you might say that read me as much polish as you can for that initial developer experience or that collaborator experience. So that was a hard one to learn, but I'm better for it. And my new projects in the future are going to be much more detail oriented from the start and not just tacked on at the end when it's too late. No, that's great. That's great. I don't know if you have any
1: specific tools for sort of Managing and organizing all of that knowledge, and, and tracking the different requests from the different departments. You're talking about, you know, UX feature requests from one team, and then you know technical requests maybe from the IT department. One thing that that we use a lot at Catchbrook is is Lucidchart for building flowcharts, and, and then we kind of take a, a picture of, uh, you know, just a PNG of that flow chart and stick that in the readme. And I found that incredibly useful for non-technical folks who are on this project to understand, you know, kind of the workflow from start to finish. Okay, the user enters something here. They click this button and it writes out to a database here or it generates some chart here uh, that that's gone a long way in terms of our working together with with clients, especially you know the the maybe non technical managers on these pro- projects. Another thing that I've discovered in 2021 is I think it's still in beta, but uh, GitHub now has boards for oh, yes. kind of Kanban style issue tracking, mm-hmm. and you can automate. Um, you know, if you open a brand new issue it will end up right on the to-do list in this board,
0: That's cool. which is really
1: nice. And yeah. then once you close the issue, it'll it'll end up on the uh, closed or, or finished, whatever that last board is. And then there's an in-progress board by default. And there's a bunch of different ways that, that you can set things up there. You, it, and it also has another uh, toggle view to view things as a list that can be broken down into milestones as well. So we've tried to leverage that a lot here in terms of organizing sort of the project issues and the project tracking. I was wondering if you found any solutions, spreadsheets can absolutely be a solution if you want them to be, uh, (laughs) for managing some of those different requests that come in and organizing the knowledge behind the projects that you're working
0: on. Yeah, this has been a hot topic recently where um, yeah, I've, I've been collaborating with a team member who's also very much interested in making this part better from both a documentation side and tracking requests and issues. So what we've done in some of my previous projects, we use like the original version of GitHub project boards where we were able to figure out, okay, what are we gonna work on? What are like the backlog, what are in progress, and then be able to automatically close those as we knocked out features. That's worked pretty well from a development perspective. And then one thing I tried in a recent set of apps is that in the app itself, the Shiny app, I would put in a module called feedback, and it will look like a little web form and they could say, okay, are you experiencing an issue? Here's a high level category to choose from. And then here's like the text you can describe in more detail. And then I wired in the GitHub API So when they submitted that, it would go onto our issue board directly.
1: That's very slick. That's very slick. I might need to steal that one from you for an app I'm working on now.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that and that could go to either GitHub or frankly, if you're a Jira shop, that could go to Jira as well or whatever. Um, Anything that has an API compliant RESTful API that lets you put these in programmatically. I think this is a nice solution so you don't have to tell the team member Oh, wait, if you have an issue, oh wait, you gotta go to this form, you gotta go outside the app, you gotta do your print screenshot thing and all this. Now I'm laughing because that's how I started, but then I had a team that kind of vetoed it and they went back to the original (laughs) way. But but for projects that I'm kind of more of like the director of, if you will, like I'm the team developer slash owner of, I am gonna use this solution because we use GitHub for both obviously the code management as well as the development issue tracking. And I consider it when a end user customer has an issue and it's something in the app not working, that's a bug, I need to fix it. And I want to make it as frictionless as possible for them to report it. But every team does it differently. So sometimes your hands are tied depending on what they recommend. But I think the key is automating that process of reporting somehow and making it not an inconvenience for your end user to do it and that's where having it in the app was kind of like that light bulb moment where i was like why didn't i think of that sooner because github api has been around for a long time i never really interacted with it until i had a project manager say hey eric i do need that in a spreadsheet and i'm like there is no way in heck I'm going to manually make a spreadsheet and copy paste text from issues. I use the GitHub API to pull that down into an Excel file in R and shiny, of course, and send that to them in an automated email every week or whatever. And then they use them whenever things they did to make their magical PowerPoint slide of a Gantt chart or whatever. So it it, it worked. You just have to think outside the box to um, use the tech to your advantage, and that's what I've been trying to do more in 2021 and hopefully this year as well.
1: No, that's an awesome use case. I have a public facing app that we just developed where I wanted, you know, it's still sort of in beta. Mm -hmm. So I wanted users who are experiencing any issues to be able to communicate those issues to me. And I was thinking about just using, tying some button uh, and some text box to the like the Blastula package to get me an email, but, then I would just take that email and create a GitHub issue right. with it. So your solution absolutely saves me a step. So I appreciate that, and that's something I hadn't even hadn't even thought through. It wasn't the fact that I couldn't do it technically. Yeah, um, and I still need to figure out the details of, but even conceptually, I hadn't put that together.
0: Yeah, it's it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, but it's uh, funny, I didn't think of it either until I had that request from that uh, project manager about getting that issue board to a spreadsheet. I'm like. You know, that's when I started looking at the API stuff. And I noticed that um, I know ever our packages are using a GitHub API for various things. I was like, you know, let's, let's dive into this. But so it, it took an afternoon, but it wasn't difficult. Once I pulled down, I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I can pull down the issues, surely there's a way to write the issues. And there are sure enough, there's an endpoint specifically for that. So it was certainly uh, fun to put together because it's one of those things where it's a small thing on the surface. But it adds to that UX of whatever you're producing and that those things get remembered little things like that, or even just frankly, the looking of an app also gets remembered a lot from the UX side. So never underestimate for anybody listening out there. If you think these things don't really add value to like the end goal, They absolutely do. You just may not realize it until it gets in the hands of customers and they start giving you feedback like you made that so much easier for me, Eric. Thank you. And I'm like, oh, you know, that's that's what I'm trying to do. But you don't really think about that until you get that feedback. So, yeah, it was a learning for
1: sure. That's awesome. I'm going to put you on the spot here to maybe wrap things up. But do you have any goals for 2022? Maybe this would be a good way to finish.
0: Ooh, yes, I, I, I definitely have a unofficially. I've been thinking of a couple of things. So it's been a learning journey that I started last year and I want to really kick it to like second or third gear, however you want to call it, of really understanding the under the hood of Shiny, under the hood of the JavaScript interactions so that I can build even more richer experiences with the front ends I'm producing. So from a technical standpoint. That's certainly near the top of the list. Um, and then as kind of in more in the open source in general, I want to share more knowledge in additional mediums that hopefully can be consumed by a lot of people. And I'm that's a long winded way of saying I have ideas for more tutorials that don't necessarily need to be in a live stream. They could just be some I record on the side and share it on online via, say, YouTube or whatnot, and help people out that are like learning some of the new tech that I've been playing with, and really see what creations they have. So, this was inspired when I saw um, Thomas Mock from our studio, one of their more prolific members, actually start using OBS for some of the R Studio live streams, and lo and behold, he actually watched one of my very early tutorials on setting up OBS with doing our stuff. And he sent me a note on Twitter just thanking me for it. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's sweet. And I was like, okay, I gotta do more because my setups changed immensely since then. So I wanna do things like that just to ease people's transition into doing new ways of sharing their learning. So I feel like that's something I'm developing a bit of an expertise in. But being able to give people a non-ramping to that kind of thing would be another goal of mine and certainly hoping to get help from feedback from others as I continue that journey as well. But um, yeah, let's uh, turn it on to you. What what are some of your goals for for the year? So
1: one of my goals is to do some more package development in the open source. I, I have one open source package on CRAN right now that I'd like to do some more work on. I would like to work some more on beautifying Shiny apps. I've, I've gotten started this year with the BSLib package, and, and I know there's that outstanding uh, interfaces UI for Shiny. I think that, that David Yeah, That's right. That I've started dipping into. I would like to finish that this year and really start applying some of that to my Shiny apps as well. And uh, maybe from a personal standpoint in a few weeks, my wife and I are expecting. So I would like to uh, be a great dad in 2022.
0: <laughs> oh, congratulations. Maybe that's number one. Yep. That's that's awesome. And um, it's it's a different experience for sure, but I think you're going to be terrific. Um, it's kind of like what I tell people in other endeavors, but be authentic. You know, you are who you are and, you know, it's always a learning journey. If you think learning JavaScript is hard, you wait to what you're in for. No, <laughs> <laughs> not to make it sound harsh, but no, you're, you're gonna be learning a lot, but enjoy enjoy the time. The The early years go fast. So for those that aren't aware, I have two sons, they're um, nine and five now, but it seems like just yesterday we were doing the whole diaper changing stuff and learning them how to talk and walk. Those go fast. So like I thought, it was a cliche that people kept telling me, but it's darn true. It does go fast. So I would just say, save for the moments and enjoy it, because it's going to be a, a, a ride that you'll never forget um, for all the good reasons. So <laughs>
1: I appreciate that. I'm sure uh, it won't be very long until she's walking around in the, the background of my our weekly uh, <laughs> podcast, trying to trying to fuss my <laughs> headphones off of my ears. Not that I've ever seen. Anybody do that uh, on your end? Not
0: here, at but. all. Not at all. I don't know where you get that idea from. Um, <laughs> yes, it is um, that the tech toys are some of their favorite toys. Um, even though I have a whole stack of other toys, it's this little thing I'm wearing. It's this mic I'm speaking on, and the fancy uh, stream deck that are the big hits. So, <laughs> well,
1: thank you for the the sage advice. Uh, you know, we're a few weeks out here, so once the our weekly highlights podcast rolls back around. Uh, I may have to take a couple weeks off, but I promise to uh, get back on the mic after that and looking forward to it.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. That um, we, We're very eager to see your journey on that. Hopefully it goes smoothly. And and yeah, um, just to recap what I said earlier for all of you listening, that uh, Mike and I will be back for the uh, our weeklies version of the 2021 wrap-up whenever that happens. It'll probably be in a week or two, depending on where, where things stand. And then after that, yeah, that's where we're honestly not sure, but rest assured we will be back whenever our weekly uh, formally launches. And again, we appreciate all of your uh, listenership out there. Um, I've heard from a few of you in private DMs that you're enjoying it. And I certainly welcome that. And we want to do our best to showcase this uh, terrific effort and who knows what happens in the future. But when I started this whole thing, it was also Not just to share awareness of our Weekly, it was also to see if I could stick with producing content regularly in the audio form, which means that I feel like I've accomplished part of that mission. I think I've done a fairly decent job with this and that might resurrect something else that I did in the past. Who knows? We'll see what the future holds, but um, we'll put that teaser out there towards the end. But uh, yeah, so... This has been super fun. This is easily the highlight, no pun intended, of my day today, uh, for sure, talking with you, Mike, about all these uh, journeys we've had. But um, for those who want to get in touch with you, want to know more about your uh, services, where can they get a hold of you? Sure. Let us know what you'd like to uh, see on the podcast in in
1: 2022. You can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K.
0: Excellent. And I am at the Rcast on Twitter. Um, The YouTube channel is youtube.com slash shiny developer series. We got some additional episodes coming up that we um, uh, have recorded that we'll be sharing shortly. Lots of cool insights from all sorts of shiny development perspectives. And I'm also um, doing my little live streaming nonsense on Twitch. Sometimes it's crazy. Sometimes it's It's uh, technical, but either way, we always have fun along the way. And certainly if you want to give us feedback on the podcast itself, rweekly.org is always there. Hit the podcast link, and then there's a contact page where you can send feedback to us. Or don't hesitate to reach out to myself or Mike on Twitter. We're always happy to engage with all of you. And to echo a point Mike said earlier, um, certainly from a community perspective, definitely check out things like the R4DS Slack the r discord and our open size slack these are all great opportunities to network with other uh, members of the r community as a whole all right i'll put a bow on this episode and we'll be back hopefully sooner with the additional recap so until then we hope you've had a terrific week and we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights soon bye for now All right, good job. Let's stop the recording here and.